Thanks, Austin. I'm always so appreciative of the thought, thoughtfulness of your prayers. Let me just pull some of these down. All right. All right, well, it's good to be back here on this Sunday. Um, I don't miss very often, but when I do, I, um, I miss being here very much. So uh, it, most of you have already seen, if you're on Facebook, you saw the pictures that I posted of Oregon, some several hundred. But what I wanted to do is show you just a few things, and I'm using this by way of introduction. So Jake, if you could just start kind of putting those up there, or, or Nathan, if you could. Um, I'll show you just a few things that I got to see and maybe make a brief comment about these things. So this is flying into Oregon, flying into Portland. This is Mount Hood, which is a 14,000-foot mountain that we obviously did not climb because you have to have ice picks and all this kind of crazy hardware. So um, anyway, flying in, we moved past that. That was one of the first things that I saw uh, other than the changing landscape, just flying in, which was quite, quite remarkable, being a guy that's really only ever been as far as Colorado. Um, so you can keep on going, Nathan. We'll move through these fairly quickly. So this is just a little little trail called Opal Creek Trail. This was a little somewhat swimming hole, although it was very, very cold. Uh, just something that, that we found, took some shots of. So beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. Go ahead, Nathan. This is, uh, you really can't tell, this is called Beacon Rock. Beacon Rock stands at about almost 800 feet tall. The, 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 the way the, uh, the picture is taken, it makes it look very short, but it's actually like very, very skinny and very, very tall. This sits right in the middle of what's called the Columbia River Gorge. You just don't see things like that around here in good old South Carolina. So uh, keep on going. That's, a, that's called Phantom Ship. That's in Crater Lake. That stands about 170 feet tall. So you can tell kind of how far I am away from that based on those numbers that I just gave you. I don't know how long it is, but 170 feet tall right there. So this is in Crater Lake State Park. That's just hiking along. These are things you see. 360 degrees. This is the kind of stuff that you're that you're looking at, you know, so continue on there. That's another picture of Crater Lake. That's the morning that we left Crater Lake. You can see the little bitty uh, mountain in the middle. That's an 827-foot volcano from the water. Crater Lake is actually a volcano that's six miles, six miles wide one way and four miles wide the other way. It's one of the deepest it's one of the deepest lakes in the world at almost 2,000 feet deep. So this is another place. This is uh, called Broken Top. You can see those, uh, the, the edges of the mountain up there. So we hiked through that. The landscape changes. It was very lush, very green. Now it becomes more desert-like, more ar arid and desolate. This is almost to the top of that. Don't let that, it's not like a little pond. It's more like a lake. You can see people to the right for some scale. Um, and that's just really cold water because it's just snow that's, that's just all snow that's just uh, dripped down from the mountain. That's coming down the mountain, just took some pictures of some nice cool vegetation. You know, it's really dry, really barren almost, and you see stuff like this. So it's just really, really pretty. This is the coast. Um, the coast changes again. Uh, I had a lot of pictures of the coast that I didn't show, but that rock back there is 327 feet tall. So it's uh, mountainous. As we were hiking along right there, we would look down and there are whales coming up out of the water, shooting water out of their blowholes. It's like, where do you, where do you go if you just see whales <laughs> everywhere? You know, uh, we're lucky to, to see a catfish or something. So, um, and you can see boats for kind of scale to see how, how big that, that rock actually is. It's just called a haystack. So uh, anyway, but it was a, quite a remarkable, remarkable trip. And everywhere that we went, you know, it's, you know, you just, you see the beauty of God, you see his creation, you know, and we see creation here, but I guess I'm so used to this. I'm used to the landscape here. I've been hiking in these mountains pretty much all of my life. Since I was a little boy at five years old, my dad and I, we drove up to the Blue Ridge Mountains and we hiked these mountains. So I'm used to seeing it. I'm used to seeing the landscape. I'm used to the vegetation. I'm used to the flora. All of that changes over there on the West Coast. And I just couldn't help but think of God's creativeness and God's design and God's beauty reflected in that creation. Then I couldn't help but think that that's just even if it is a modicum, it's a modicum of what it's going to be whenever God gives us and creates a new heaven and a new earth, things that we can enjoy. And not only that, but we'll be able to see things without, without the sin nature that, that clouds our vision, that keeps us, that restrains us from fully accepting, fully enjoying, and therefore fully glorifying all that God, is, God has made. So 
I long for that day more so than I ever have, just <laughs> for many things, but for one thing that ranks low, and that's to see what God creates, but most importantly, to see the beauty of Jesus. Also, when I saw Crater Lake, which is a volcano, and then you got the volcano inside the volcano, I can't help but think of the fact that at one point that thing blew, the top just blew off of that sucker and created devastation. I don't think there were homes or anything around there or people necessarily probably uh, because of how long ago that it would have happened and because of what was around there at this point in time. But I couldn't help but think of, you know, you see this beautiful, pristine, you know, uh, crater with, with beautiful water that's in there. And we, we all, when we s- we were in awe when we see these things. And I liken that to kind of who we are with Christ and without Christ. We're we're these vessels of um, we're, the, we're these vessels that are capable of just absolute devastation and absolute destruction. We're these we're, we're these broken and fallen people that can you know, just ruin lives, not just our own but others. You know because we're depraved. But then God does this miraculous work in our life, and now because of the righteousness of Christ, because of God and His beauty, and because of His grace, we are seen by Him as these beautifully, wonderfully made creatures. You know, and so um, it's a it's a far cry from from where we've come from to where we are, and we have only to boast in the grace of God. So, um, as I was heading there, I was looking for some assurances. I was looking for assurances that the plane would arrive because you know that I hate flying. I won't go into all of that, but you know it was a long flight. On the way there was four and a half hours after I'd already flown to Atlanta from Greenville, which is never terribly bad but I'm trying to psych myself up so I start reading about turbulence you may think that's a bad idea but for me it's a good idea because I work based off of knowledge I'm like okay if I have knowledge that turbulence most of the time doesn't kill you then I can be okay with it so that's what I started doing just doing research on turbulence updraft the credentials of the pilots for Delta Airlines um, looking at the statistics statistical analysis of planes and how often they go down and you know how it compares to uh, the risk of being in a car or just walking to your mailbox and so all of these numbers helped me a little bit you would think you're a pastor you should just rest in the sovereignty of God I, I get that I understand that you know but in my flesh I had to do some research and find some things and say you know um, Lord you know just just get me get me by but I want these assurances both going there and going back I want assurances that the plane's going to be okay And you know what, no matter how much I read or how much I want, the reality is that you just don't get those assurances. There's nothing that's going to say unless God speaks audibly and says to you, guess what, I'm going to get you to point A to point B this time. God doesn't do that typically, at least not in my life. Um, In certain places he does with the scriptures, obviously, but as far as making it safely from point A to point B uh, for my hiking trip, it doesn't so much happen that way. But I'm looking for assurances and you, you're the same way. We want assurances. Those are the things that we desire in this life. We want to know for a fact that such and such is going to take place. We want to know, we want to be assured that the economy is not going to tank. We want to be insured, assured that, you know what, we, we've, we've made these investments, whether it's a monetary investment or whether it's a, a, a time capital type situation. We've invested time. We want to make sure that we have assurances that our investments will not you know, will we'll not return void, but they will have meaning. We want to know that these things won't ruin. We want to know that our kids are getting great educations. We would love to have assurances that our kids are going to be safe, that they're going to be healthy, that all of these things are going to happen. We want to have assurances that, you know, that, that if somebody gets cancer, that they go and they have their screening and they have their testing and they have their procedures, that they come back with a clean bill of health. We want those kind of assurances, whether it's indirectly affecting you or directly affecting you. But that's how we are. We want assurances but we just don't get them always do we we don't get them the way that we do we're assured that nathan's cute because he is but there's a lot of assurances that we don't get right we don't get these assurances but there are assurances that we can rest on and specifically there are three that i want to highlight in today's text because i think it's good news for us and i think it should come as great comfort to us and help bolster our confidence in Christ, specifically in the ways that he offers us assurances in this text. So if you will, turn to the book of John chapter 14. I know Austin dealt with 25 through 26 primarily, and then he touched on some others. I'm going to start back in 25 and kind of go a little bit different route, but to add a little bit to what Austin has already talked about. So John chapter 14, verse 25 through 31. You can follow with me as I read. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, Jesus says, 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, I'm sorry, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So three assurances that I want to just walk through with you this morning. Here's the objective, to draw out the implications of three separate assurances Jesus provides before leaving his disciples. Put yourself in this context, put yourself in the situation for a moment. We have the privilege of hindsight. We have the privilege of 2,000 years of evidence, of outworking, of byproducts of what Christ has done. But put yourself in this situation, imagine that you're a disciple and consider Jesus, whom you've come to love, who you've seen do amazing things, is going to leave. He's been threatening it, he's been promising it, well not, he's been promising that this is going to come, he's been saying this over and over again, and now the moment has come. They're finishing up their time in the upper room, they're finishing up their time at that last supper during that time, and he's about to go to the cross. So this is one of his last exchanges with these disciples, and he tells them, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave, I'm going to go, but I want to leave you with three assurances. Assurance number one, if you're following with me, assurance number one, and we'll go back and read where it is in the text. This is the assurance that all believers have the presence of God dwelling within them. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. We know that the Holy Spirit will not just be with them, but Jesus said the Holy Spirit will be in them. And I want you to just let that marinate for just a second. Just let that, let that settle for just a second, that you as a human being actually have God dwelling inside of you if you are a follower of Christ. Now, if you really process that for a little while, if you're like me, a lot of questions start to surface. If God is dwelling in me, which I believe, how do I answer the fact that I still break God's law? How do I answer the fact that I, I, st- I still am given over sometimes to a depraved mind and, 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 and all of these happen? How, how can something so monumental, how can, how can something so magnificent be in me and yet I still choose things that are far less wild, to use a, to use a lyric from uh, an artist that I used to really like and follow, where he says that we would rather chase after the call of lovers so less wild. And he's saying, hey, here's God Almighty who said, this is what I have for you. But we settle for so many other things. How can we do that? How do we, how do we settle so much? When we have God within us. But there is the assurance that he is absolutely in us. But I think it does beg the question. God has always been with us. He's always been with his people. But now the promise is to be with them in a different way. To be with them as an indwelling presence. You know, our missional community had this conversation the other night. So I'll just let you know if you don't know. I do not believe that the Holy Spirit of God indwelled the Old Testament saints. I believe he was with them. I believe there was anointing. I believe that these things happened. The language that Jesus uses regarding the Holy Spirit changes, changes under the new covenant. It changes here in Jesus teaching where he says he's been with you. Now he will be in you. There's a strong line of distinction that I think is being drawn. Does the Holy Spirit's role change? Does his function change? I would say no. Why? Because God doesn't change. We have to be careful because sometimes we reduce the third person of the triune Godhead to third place, but he's not. He has the same attributes as God the Father. He has the same attributes as God the Son. He's not a derelict stepchild. He's not that. He's absolutely God, fully God, and he dwells in you and he dwells in me if you're a follower of Christ. So you can't miss that. You can't disconnect that reality. This is a big deal, that 
God, fully God, dwells in you and dwells in me if you follow Christ. You can't divorce regeneration from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You cannot have one without the other. Once you have been made new, Jesus, for us now, Jesus puts the Holy Spirit in you. And you can't divorce those things. Those are mainstays. So what does the Holy Spirit do when he, he, not it, when he indwells the believer? So just a few things. I won't spend a lot of time on this. I think Austin covered some of this. Um, A lot of this you can go back and read for yourself. And so I just want to share with you a few things just so that you can know, okay, I have the Holy Spirit. All right, this is is an assurance. This is a promise. This is non-negotiable. This is not open for debate. I have the Holy Spirit, so let's bank on that because that's what Jesus teaches us. So what should we expect to see as an outpouring or an outworking of the Holy Spirit that's in you and in me? And here's our time for introspection. Here's our time for self-evaluation. Normally this comes at the end. Normally this comes more at the application point. But we need to start thinking on this now. We need to be very clear about these things because you need to take this home with you. Because how can we have this encounter with a real, full God who's in us and yet there be nothing that comes from us. I'm not saying that's true of you. I'm not saying that's true of me. But we have to consider the fact that we should, in reality, see the outworking of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you've heard of the fruits of the Spirit. You've heard of the spiritual gifts. These are things that stem from the human who has been indwelt by God Almighty, and therefore he ensures that these things come out of your life. So what does the Holy Spirit do? There are a number of things. In this text specifically, he teaches you, and he says he teaches you all things and brings to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Clearly, this is not all without exception. Clearly, this is not he teaches you everything. He doesn't make you God. He doesn't make you omniscient. What he's saying here is, I will teach you everything that you need to know, everything that you need to recall, everything that you need to remember with regards to what I've taught you for the purpose of furthering the gospel and advancing the kingdom of God. There's a promise and a surety that you will have those things given to you. And it's not just to these disciples, but it's to you as well. I have to believe that. I have to believe that when you engage people, no matter what you think you know or don't know, that when you get in these moments that we can trust and we can rely on the Holy Spirit to bring to our awareness, to bring to our mind and our recollection things that we need to say, things that God intends to communicate to people that we encounter. The Holy Spirit teaches. He teaches all that we need to know. He doesn't just teach you, but he will uh, also with teaching and remembrance. So there's teaching And that's the beauty of this. When we encounter the scriptures, there's a lot that we don't understand, right? There's a lot of things that kind of get muddy, that get murky. The beauty of it is that it doesn't matter your academic credentials. It doesn't matter how scholastic or scholarly or whatever you are. It really matters about the Holy Spirit. In in Corinthians, when Paul writes, he speaks to these people. He says, listen, these things, these truths are spiritually discerned. Now, that goes two ways. For someone who's not in Christ... It's saying you can't get these things. That's why truth is foolishness to those who are perishing because they're spiritually discerned. You can't expect to be encountering someone and engaging them with the gospel. And you, you can't shake your head in frustration because, you know, if they're lost and you're pouring out these great doctrinal nuggets and all of a sudden and, and they're just rejecting, and nah, I don't get that. That doesn't make sense. It's not because you're not clear necessarily. It's not because you're not eloquent or fluent in your speech necessarily. It's because God has to illuminate their heart. He's got to open their eyes. He's got to enlighten them. He has to show them. The Holy Spirit of God has to do these things. And so he teaches these things. And for the believer, it's the same way. We have the Spirit of God, but in God's timing, he teaches you things. This is why, this is why if you read through the Bible this year, if you're trekking with us, if you're doing that, and you finish, you say, I finally finished the Bible. And you say, you know what? I've come away with one thing that I know very little. There's a reason for that. You keep going because the Holy Spirit in his time slowly builds and slowly teaches you things. As I preach through the scriptures, and I've been doing this uh, uh, for, for quite a while now, you know, I've preached through this much of, much of John as a youth pastor, and I wouldn't dare pick up my old sermons and try to preach them. They're horrible. I'm like, I knew so, so little, but I thought that I was, you know, I thought that I was great. I thought that I knew so much, but I knew so very little. And I can't imagine 10 years from now, if I pick up John again in this context or whatever, and I say, you know, I can't imagine what the Lord's going to teach me at that point in time. Why? Because the Holy Spirit slowly, 
teaches me new truths in his timing. So that's a part of what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit also convicts. We talked two weeks ago about worldly guilt versus, versus godly guilt. We talked about how there's a worldly guilt that leads to death, and there is a godly guilt that leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. The Holy Spirit plays the role in the godly guilt or the godly grief. The Holy Spirit convicts, which leads us to repentance, which then causes us to offer up works that are representative, and rightly so, of our love for God, as Jesus taught in John 14. If you love me, keep my commandments. The Holy Spirit convicts us. John 16, 7 through 8, which we'll see in, a, in, in several weeks. It says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning righteousness and judgment. Why? Because he's the one that convicts. And he's in you. Why are you learning things? Why is it that you're able to retain these lofty, lofty realities? It's because of the Holy Spirit of God. Why is it that you do something, even though the Holy Spirit doesn't necessarily keep you from doing something, why is it that you do something that massively missed the mark, and then you walk away and you feel horrible about it? Not just that it hurt somebody, not maybe just that you got caught, but that you've offended God. You see, that's the dividing line between the lost world and the Christian world when it comes to guilt. The guilt that leads to death is a guilt that says, I'm sorry that I got caught, but I'm not sorry for an offense against a holy God because that's not repentance. Godly guilt is, oh, I'm so sorry that I've offended God. Yes, I'm sorry that it hurt this person. I'm sorry for what this caused, but most of all, I'm, I'm sorry for what it has done to a holy God or to defame a holy God. The Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit brings about gifts, the spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 11. Listen to some of these, and there are more, but he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Here we go. We're all given this in Christ. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. Solomon was given supernatural wisdom. A lot of time wisdom is something that comes with time. A lot of time wisdom is something that is experiential. There's a difference in wisdom and knowledge, right? Knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is what you do with what you know. There's a difference. And to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits or discernment. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. The apparitions to each one individually as he wills. Now, <laughs> We could really dive into talking about cessationism or uh, being a continuist and all of these fun things with regards to the spiritual gifts, and those are fun conversations to have. Maybe, maybe, if Austin agrees to let us preach through the book of Acts, we can start dancing around some of those fun topics, but just know that these are gifts. Whether they're active now or not is not what I'm trying to say right now, but understand that the Spirit is giving gifts and later in that text it talks about for the purpose it talks about for the edification of the church for the furtherance of the kingdom these aren't arbitrary gifts just to say wow you're special these are gifts that are given and may be activated in time to a substantiate and validate the gospel of christ and to further the kingdom of god so that's another part of the holy spirit's role so let's say that certain gifts do still exist that's part of the Holy Spirit's function, is to make those active in your life. Do you have wisdom? Do you have discernment? You know, do you have this gifting or that gifting? Well, that's the Holy Spirit bringing these things out in your life. There's a difference, by the way, in gifting and talents, okay? The Holy Spirit also doesn't just bring about gifts of the Spirit, but also brings about fruits. You've heard it before, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, all of these things. And think of it this way, if the Holy Spirit of God is in you, here's your application, what should come out of you? Well, he gives you the list. He gives you the list. And by the way, the first three are love, joy, 
and peace. And in this text, just a few verses before, he's already dealt with the love aspect. Hey, if you love me, keep my commandments. In one short section, four times he turns the same phrase. We looked at this two weeks ago. And he talks about love. He zeroes in on love. So love is a major thing. The first and second greatest commandment zeroes in on love. And now he starts talking about peace. Peace I will leave with you. And then he starts talking about joy, saying, listen, if you knew the implications of me going back to the Father, you would rejoice. What does that mean? You would have unceasing joy if you got it. If you really got why I'm going back to the Father and what that means, you would have joy. So these assurances just keep pouring out. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit provides the irrefutable evidence that you have been regenerated or that you belong to Christ or and, and, and uh, are alive in Him. The Holy Spirit, like Christ and God the Father, always accomplishes that which He sets out to do. You understand this. The Holy Spirit has a role. The Holy Spirit has a function. He teaches. He brings gifts. He leads us. He illumin- illuminates things. He does all of these things for us, and He does them well. The Scripture does not teach that God ever misses the mark. All that God plans, He does. Nothing can frustrate the will of God. Who can deny Him? Over and over and over, we see that God is sovereignly working and moving things, and He gets all that He desires. You say, well, it says that God was frustrated here, or God was angry here. God made a choice to move and act and do in such a way that would result in a very real emotion. He would, he, would, he would sovereignly decree that sin would come to pass, although he's without sin and there's no darkness in him. But guess what? He's still perfectly good. And he's still God. It doesn't diminish his character because he sovereignly decrees these things to come to pass. So the Holy Spirit is God. So all that the Holy Spirit works and seeks to do, he absolutely succeeds in doing. Once the Holy Spirit indwells a person and begins to work, he will be successful in accomplishing his task. You know what one of his tasks are? If you package them all up and see them for what they are, it's sanctification. If he's teaching you, if he's convicting you, if he's doing all these things, he's working about sanctification in your life. He's drawing you closer to Jesus. He's conforming you more to the image of God or to the image of Jesus. The Spirit of God only moves in one direction. You understand? He moves Godward. So this has to be evidence. There has to be evidence in our life. If the Holy Spirit only moves the way of God in our lives, then that should mean that we see one another moving that same way. Or at least that's the pattern. Because doesn't it beg the question, if someone says, I'm in Christ, so the implication is what? That they have God in them. Hey, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, so what does that mean? What are they saying? That I have the Holy Spirit that's teaching me, that's convicting me, that's guiding me, that's, that's gifting me, that's doing all these things. Okay, I see those things, that's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. If someone comes to me and says, guess what, I started this, this, this new diet you know, it's a new diet of, 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 of nothing but, you know, lettuce. And they've been on it for six months, and they don't look any different. In fact, they look worse. I'd be like, mm. <laughs> you know, either there's some major medical complications going on here, or you're a liar. Maybe you've substituted lettuce for, you know, Twinkies. I don't know. So you have to be, there has to be evidence. If I stand in front of a truck and get hit and walk in the room, and, you know, I don't look mangled up. I look the same as I do now. I say, I just got hit by an 18-wheeler. You're going to say, eh, something's askew. Something's off. On a much more monumental scale, if we say, I have the Holy Spirit of God. God has come into my life. He literally dwells within me. And he's not neutral or stagnant, but he's purposeful and he has intent and he moves and he works. If he's doing that, there has to be evidence of that indwelling. There has to be. And yet, when someone like you or someone like me looks at someone else who professes to be a Christian, and there's really no evidence, there's no, but there's a pattern that says otherwise, and we challenge them, and we say, I don't know that you're in Christ, brother. I don't know that you're in Christ, sister. We're called judgmental, because only God can judge them, right? Only God can judge them. How dare you say that or suggest that someone's not in Christ? Listen, it's been made very clear that the Holy Spirit comes in, and there are fruits of the Holy Spirit. 
But if there are no fruits, or at least there's a pattern of bad fruit, then we have to, we have to at the very least suggest that maybe the Holy Spirit doesn't actually reside in you. And that's not easy for anybody to hear. It's quite confrontational, right? But you might hear, but that's judgmentalism. You can't see my heart. I can't. I can't. But I can see the byproduct. I can see the outworking. Because the Bible says that there will be these things. So I'm not banking on what I'm seeing that's inside. I'm banking on what's coming out. That will let me know what's within. I've been told that before. Uh, you know, you can't, you, can't, you can't question my salvation because you don't, you don't see my heart. Well, here's my question. If it's not, in some sense, okay for us to bring into questions the legitimacy of someone's regeneration or their claim, their faith claim, then why, not once, but multiple times, does the Scripture instruct the church to perform church discipline? Why would Jesus do that? Why would Paul do that? Because to do church discipline, you have to make some assumptions based on evidence or a lack thereof, or negative evidence. So if that's what we're charged to do, when it says, hey, if these things aren't happening, if there's no repentance, treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, what does that mean? It means you consider them to be outside of the body of faith. You consider them to be what? Lost. That's what Jesus is telling us to do. So this nonsense about you can't judge me, you can't say this, you can't say that, is anti-biblical. It's anti-God because God challenges the church to say exactly that. I mean, have you read Jesus lately? Have you read Paul lately? These guys speak with such strong tones towards these things. I mean, it's what we're called to do. So it's not judgmental. It's not a character assassination because that's the difference. People say, oh, you're judging me, you're judging me. There's a difference in assassinating someone's character and saying, I'm just calling a spade a spade. I'm just trying to identify based on evidence what's really happening. So we have the assurance that the Spirit of God sent in the name of Christ dwells within us to ensure that we finish the course Assurance number two, the assurance that everyone who believes can experience peace that is not of this world, okay? This is the assurance that everyone who believes can experience peace that is not of this world. There's two types of peace, and I'm going to move quickly. Worldly peace, and there's godly peace. Worldly peace is an illusion. This doesn't really exist. We know the world is broken. We know the world is at odds with God. The Bible calls it enmity. The Bible calls us, or, or those who are not in Christ, or the world enemies. Uh, the Bible says that you're hostile towards God until you belong to Him. So the fallen world is in a constant battle. It's broken and at odds with God. Jobs don't bring us peace. Family doesn't bring us peace. These beautiful little babies that have come in, they don't bring us peace. Sometimes we think, if I could just have a family, if I could have this, all will be well. Okay? All will be well. There are a few moments of peace in my six-person household these days. I promise you. You know, COVID has done a lot of things, but it has entrapped me in a house with six people, with four lovely children whom I love very much, but they get noisy. They get noisy and cantankerous, <laughs> you know, and so, you know, fists start flying, you know, uh, and, I'm, and I'm just trying to survive. So marriage doesn't necessarily bring peace. At best, at best, there is only the illusion of peace in terms of this world, because there's worldly peace, and then there's godly peace. One scholar said it this way, the peace which the world has is shallow. It's unstable. It's unsatisfying and false. It talks much about peace, but knows little of the thing itself. We have peace societies, peace programs, peace corps, a peace palace, and a league of nations to promote peace. Yet, all the great powers are armed to the teeth. So there's a worldly peace. This is what Jesus speaks of. He says, peace I leave with you, peace I give to you, not as the world do I give you. So he's saying, I'm not giving you this kind of peace. I'm not giving you the illusion of peace. I'm not giving you this weird temporal kind of thing that really doesn't last, it really doesn't satisfy. I'm giving you something that's eternal, something that will last. Listen, this is the peace that he promises you, okay? All right, key in, we'll move quickly. 
He says, peace I leave with you. Two types of peace. There's this positional peace that he gives us. This is a, here's your word, okay? Your reconciliatory peace. What happened when we're justified? We're reconciled to God, right? We're reconciled to God. So we're at peace with God. And this is a major, major, major thing because prior to being at peace with God, we were hostile towards God. We were hostile towards God. God is lined up in battle array against us. You've heard the scripture say that the wrath of God abides on all who are not believing. Before you were a Christian, before I was a Christian, the wrath of God was abiding on us. All right, this is a scary, scary thought. There's a reason that we should take seriously when the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But then when he reconciles us, Romans 5, 1 says, being justified by faith, you have peace with God. We're reconciled. Now there's this relationship tranquility that we have between us and God. We're no longer at odds. We're no longer strangers. He's no longer lined up as a warrior in battle against us, but we are with him and behind him as warriors against the broken and fallen and wicked world. Peace language is used prior to salvation, prior to the reconciliatory peace of God. We were at war against him. We were enemies of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. There's this positional peace that we all have now. But that's only one kind of peace. There's another kind of peace. That's, that is a current and a future peace. We in, will enjoy the peace of, 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 of reconciled relationship with God in heaven. We, we, we have that right relationship now because we're no longer estranged from him, but there's also a different kind of peace that we can tap into, and this is more of a tranquil peace. This is more of a moment-to-moment calmness. This is more of a uh, do-not-be-anxious-about-anything type of peace because of who God is and because of what he's willing to do for those who will petition him, those who will ask. You say, where do you get this idea? From Philippians 4, 7. From Philippians 4, 7, this is where it says, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Right after that is when Paul writes about, hey, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's excellent, whatever's praiseworthy, think on these things. But before that, Paul's writing about peace. How do you find peace? And it's very, very, very simple. This is low-hanging fruit. He says, listen, you want peace? Because we all do. We all want peace. This is not reconciliatory peace. We have that already. This is something different. This is a peace that says, no matter what I'm looking at in this world, all the stuff that's going on, all the things that give us anxiety, from career stuff to rioting stuff, all of these things that kind of concern us, this is the kind of peace that he offers you in the midst of this. In the midst of war, he's saying you can have peace. And he says the way you do it is by bringing your petitions before the Lord. So my question is this, what becomes our default mode when the anxieties rise? You know, what what becomes our go-to methodology when all of these things concern us? Listen, I'm in Portland, right? The home of Antifa. They're everywhere. We're driving down the street. You see them on a corner. I'm like, you know, it's like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm. Let's have some coffee. You know, whatever. You know, don't, don't, don't do something <laughs> horrible to me. There's a peace that we can have even in the midst of that. What about those who are persecuted? How do they find peace? Those who are either burned at the stake or fed to lions or have a, have a barrel of a gun put to their head saying, renounce your faith in Christ. We, we want peace in those moments. Because it's not just peace for future that's offered here. It's not just, hey, you get through all this mess and you'll have it one day. No, this scripture says you can have it now. You just have to make your petitions known and bring those things to the Lord. Because he has given you the Holy Spirit. He has given you Jesus. Do you not remember in Ephesians where Jesus said, I am peace. And I am your peace. We want this. We want to have peace. We want this peace that Jesus is promising. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So we're reconciled to God and we have peace in that way. But we also have peace moment to moment as we petition the Lord. You know, as the Bible is more and more commonly seen as hate literature, that should make you a little, (laughs) maybe a little anxious. 
you know, as the sexual revolution just progresses, as it gets wilder and wilder, and as there's a threat for these things to further infiltrate our school systems and infiltrate the minds and the hearts of our children, there's calls for concern. With organizations that boldly, boldly say we seek to disrupt the nuclear, the Western nuclear family structure. God's design for family. With these things that give us great concern, there's peace in the middle of that. So what does it look like to live with this peace? What does it look like to access this peace? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You see, we look for these crazy formulas. We look for the next book that's going to come out that's going to show me how to find deeper peace and meaning in my life. But Jesus says, listen, make your prayers and supplications known to me. Here's the formula. Get with me connect with me there's a reason that we're given spiritual disciplines and the reason that our life tends to go downward in a spiral when we forsake the spiritual disciplines whether it's gathering with a body or whether it's or whether it's your your personal time in prayer or whether it's your personal time reading the scriptures or whatever spiritual discipline you want to insert in whatever blank this piece isn't hard to find it's like finding gold without without having to pan or mine for it it's just up here (laughs) Some things you got to work hard, you got to earn. But Jesus is like, you want peace? Here it is. It's right here. Stop going here and there, right here. Just, it's on this plate. Just take it. So we have assurance that everyone who believes can experience a meaningful, lasting, eternal peace that is not of this world. And the final assurance is this. The assurance that everyone, every genuine believer will forever have cause for joy we all want peace we all want the holy spirit to be evident in our life we all want joy and here's where we can have the assurance listen to verse 28 you heard me say to you i'm going away and i will come to you if you loved me you would have rejoiced because i'm going to the father for the father is greater than i now i'm i'm approaching the affirmative by first identifying the negative what is it that he said he said listen you would have rejoiced if you had loved me. So there's somewhere that the disciples are slipping. They're struggling a little bit. And he's saying, listen, here's, here's, if you would understand why I'm going back to the Father and what that means, then you would have joy. So I think there's an assurance given to us through this negative, through this admonishment to the disciples to show us how we can have joy because we want that. And this, like peace, is not temporal joy. This is not, oh, I got this vehicle that I've really wanted for a long time. You know, you drive that for five to six months. It's like, ah, okay. I was elated, and ex- I was super excited to get the Jeep, and now I'm like, ah, it's, 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 it's good. It's got, it's got tires. You know, I don't, clean it as, I don't clean it as much as I did, you know. Maybe I let the kids eat in it a little bit more than I used to. You know, uh, I was pretty strict about those things at first. But I know this. These temporal things fade. These temporal joys, these temporal happinesses, um, they fade. You may say, how can we have joy in days like these? Listen, Christians should be the most joyful people in the known world. Christians have more reason to party. They have more reason to celebrate. They have more reason to have joy. Listen, godly joy is not a superficial joy. It's not a temporal joy. It's not brought on by worldly achievement, accolades, or experiences. This is not the heart of your joy. Good things happen. You get married. This is a joyous occasion. This is fine. But there's a difference in that kind of joy or that kind of happiness and the joy that comes from from the relationship that we have with God. And it is God's grace that you can be in a marriage or you can have the family and say, hey, this brings me joy. But don't confuse eternal joy. Don't confuse joy that is supernatural, joy that God brings only through his gospel. Don't confuse that with something that's temporal, with something that can be taken Godly joy is much deeper. It's much more powerful. It can transcend the deepest of sorrows. It's eternal because the truths that complete our joy do not change. Our joy is eternal. The root of our joy 
is in the gospel and in the truth of Jesus. And those things can't be taken and those things don't change. So our joy cannot be robbed. Our joy cannot be stolen from us. Over and over again, the biblical authors write about, I've written these things or these things are done to complete your joy. So there's this joy, but Jesus says something interesting here. He says, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. This is the last, the last line of this text we'll really deal with because you need to take this away. And I kind of saved this for last on purpose because this is one that the Unitarians love to, to grab onto and say, see, <laughs> you, you, you Trinitarians are wrong. How, how is Jesus, if he's equal, how is he going to be saying that the Father is greater than him? First of all, if you take the Scripture as a whole, over and over, the overwhelming evidence or the evidence for uh, uh, the deity of Christ is overwhelming. And this is just throwing one more token into the pot to make it even richer. It says, the Father is greater than I. To understand this statement demands the understanding of what took place at the incarnation. The world was broken, the world was godless, and an unholy place. God made this world, and it rebelled against him. Sin took over, sin ran rampant. And then God, from before the foundations of the world, initiated a plan, or acted his plan. And he sent Christ... As the God-man, to put on flesh, not just to put on flesh, to become a what? A slave. And to dwell among men, to dwell in the filth, to be smitten and afflicted of God, to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Meanwhile, God the Father, God the Father, the first person, is positionally separated, not in nature, not in being, not in essence, but in person. And positionally, he is in glory. So Jesus took a lesser position. Jesus, in that sense, became inferior positionally. You are inferior positionally to the President of the United States. His is an office that is of higher rank than yours, sociologically speaking. I told, I told Marley the other day, I said, listen, the most important job in the world is a pastor, okay? Just know that. So, um, <laughs> specifically speaking of the president, so you're better than the president? That's right. That's right, Marley. We're just goofing, but. So Jesus put on flesh. He became a man, became a slave, rejected, hated, beaten, mocked, scoffed. The very being that Jesus made, the very beings that Jesus made scoffed at him, mocked him, challenged him, abused him, rejected him, choose not to believe him. I mean, let's think about that for just a second, just a brief second. This is the creator of all things, the creator of the cosmos, and he comes down and is rejected. So, of course, he took an inferior role. There's no earthly example that will allow us to rightly consider the vast contrast between God and man, and yet man despised him. If you don't hold to the doctrine of radical depravity, then you need to open your eyes. So what does greater than I mean? It means that God is greater positionally as he is on the throne in glory. Keep in mind that Jesus became man, became flesh. Jesus became a slave. He forfeited his position beside the Father, and became a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, forfeited the exercise of certain divine attributes, chose to restrain himself in the exercise of the divine attributes, therefore becoming inferior and subordinating himself to God the Father for our good. This is what it means that the Father is greater, not in quality, not in substance, not in deity, but in his position. The Christian should share the great joy and the reality of Christ's reunion for, with the Father for two reasons. 
He says, I go to be back with the Father. If you would have known this, if you would have got this, you would have rejoiced. Why? First of all, because with Jesus going, that means he finished his work. It means his work was accomplished. God is not going to go back. Jesus is not going to go back to the Father unless it was time to do so, unless what he had came to do was finished. And you know this, I get this, but when you're looking at this text and you're going to wonder, what does he mean by this? I'm helping you to understand, here it is, believer, this is why we can celebrate, this is why we rejoice, or the people that you may talk to that say, why is this such a good thing? You can say, because with him going back, it means that he accomplished his work. It means that justification is an actuality. It means that reconciliation is an actuality. It means that, that, that your hope is secure. It means that eternity is secure. It means that all of these things, that you get to benefit from are realities because none of it, none of it was finished until after Christ was resurrected. And then he ascended because his work was done. Jesus would no longer be the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He would no longer be forsaken, no longer despised and rejected, no longer smitten of God or afflicted, but restored to full glory. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. That's why we celebrate. Because where Jesus, although glorious, was robed in flesh so that no one would esteem him, so that no one would recognize, because he came as a slave, meek and humble. But now, restored to his full glory, we celebrate. Our greatest needs are met. Our greatest hope is secure. Our greatest fears are removed. Our greatest sins are atoned for. So here's my closing questions. Do you rejoice at Jesus being reunited with God the Father? When you think of God being at the right, or Jesus being at the right hand of God, does it give you cause for celebration? Does it excite you in your soul because of the implications? Brothers and sisters, I hope that it does. Joy is there to be experienced because Christ finished his work. He finished and then gave us the Holy Spirit who has sealed us for eternity. We've been given the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to ensure that we conform to the image of Christ. We've been granted eternal peace with God through justification. We are promised that present, that present day today peace is ours if we petition the Lord. And finally, our joy has been secured by Christ's completed gospel work that's reason to celebrate so i hope that it reminds you of the source of your joy and the hope that you have from day to day i pray that the holy spirit would be proven through you i pray that you would find peace from day to day and i pray that you will be joyful in all things no matter what is at our door let's pray and we'll be dis we'll, we'll exit out the building Lord, you've been good to us today. As always, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would cause your word to connect in ways that I can't make it connect. Lord, I pray that despite um, uh, any, any failed effort on my part to be clear, Lord, that you would make your word clear for others. Lord, I pray that whether these are things that we've known for a long time or whether they're new for us, I pray that you would cause these things to land in a profound way. Lord, and be a constant reminder to us of our great need and the great source of our joy. And Lord, I pray that others might see the joy that comes from us because of these realities, Lord. And that may be a way that our light shines before men and glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thanks for being here. You're dismissed.